All right, welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm sitting with my friends, my fellow workers, co-laborers. Is this the first time you've referred to us as friends? Have we have we moved up in the Paul? The I've shame? told many people you were my friend. <laughs> Don't be sensitive. I've gone to California with him. Yeah, Tanya and I have done a lot of fun things together. Yes, mm-hmm. and Martin as well. Mm-hmm. Paul, Tanya, Martin. The topic of today's episode is going to be about defining classical education. This is something we're returning to in the fall, something we talked about last fall. I think it's something we're going to talk about probably every fall for the rest of our lives, maybe. Um, But we're coming back to that topic. Before we get there, it's been a little bit. Have you guys been reading anything different recently? (laughs) I finally finished Don Quixote. Oh, wow. That's impressive. 940 pages. It was literally, it took me six weeks and that's all I read. It was literally a huge milestone. But here's the other thing is when I finished it, then I thought, well, I kind of miss him. (laughs) It was good. Yeah. Any takeaways? What did you like about it? I thought it was really good. It was funny. It really just held up, Hmm. even though, you know, I was a little worried about the second part, but it really did just, it held up really well. Hmm. I thought it was great. You like it, right? You had read it years ago, you Mm -hmm. said. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was really, really that's, good. Yeah. I oh. would highly recommend okay. it. Well, so you, now, you finished it, so that's great. I yeah. restarted it. I had been listening to it, and I decided I was going to pick it up and actually... It, oh, you, you know. didn't really need to restart it. Oh, no, I did. I did. Okay. I did. So I, now I, I want to read the book that you that got you interested in Don Quixote, which is oh, Graham Greene, right? Graham Greene's Monsignor Quixote, yeah. I mean, yeah. would I enjoy that after reading Don oh, Quixote? Oh, yeah, I think you would. I think I, I'm going to read that. reading it reverse. I'll, I'll bring my copy and lend it to you. And then, um, no, I want to get it and make notes, I think. Okay. Be, since I've just read Don Quixote. So mm. now I'm reading this little novella. Well, I just finished it called Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, mm. which is about this charwoman in 1950s England who goes to, who just decides she needs a Dior dress not to wear, <laughs> just to hang in her cupboard. Like she just falls absolutely in love with this dress and she saves money for three years and then she flies to paris and just her relationship you know she walks into dior and they don't know what to do with her it's funny and it's really it was really just heartwarming a heartwarming story about a british person buying a french dress is very on brand for you in terms it of really story. is. <laughs> if I was to come up with a plot that i think you would like yes and then i'm gonna read my i'm gonna read my one of my favorite murder mystery authors, Anne Cleves, her new Vera book came out. So I'm going to read that next, and then I'll get back to, I guess, whatever Lee wants me to read. Uh, Voyage of the Don Treader. Uh, I've read that. Oh, okay, good. I read that for yeah. her. Uh, Martin, doesn't Chesterton have a Don Quixote tribute book? Yes, he does. Now, uh, what is Green's called? Monsignor Quixote. Is okay, the other, uh, his is called The Return of Don Quixote. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, so that's another one. Yeah. I haven't read that, okay. but Martin spoke highly of that one, that... You yeah, and I I read one of them, and I thought it was the Chesterton one. But listening to you tell me about Greens, I'm I'm wondering if I've read Greens. I can't remember now. <laughs> to go back and look, Paul, what are you reading right now? Just Don Quixote, and Don Quixote, and, and, then, the, and the Book of the, Nature. The Book of Nature. Yes, yes, yeah, those never are the two. Tale. Well, but I'm excited because the days are getting shorter. I've never been excited in my life before, but now I'm excited. The days are getting shorter because that means I'm I'm inside in, by eight thirty. And now I actually have time to stop and do something uh, inside reading, which is nice. Sure. Yeah. I'm excited about cooler weather, so I don't have to mow the lawn every other yes. day. Yes. <laughs> Same. Yeah. 
Yeah, Martin, are you reading anything right now? You know, I was I was sitting here trying to remember the book I just the name of the book I just finished. It's a Raphael Sabatini book, and I've got I can remember the titles of twelve others, and I'm trying to remember the title of this one. But it, I, but just just to say something about Raphael Sabatini, one of the great, absolutely, I'd say the top two or three great adventure writers. Mm. And this this one just it takes place in the in Portugal uh, in the in the time. Uh, leading up to the Battle of Waterloo, and mm. Wellington is actually a character in it, and it's a real incident. It was told to him, and he, you know, writes it into this this great story. And um, I just, I told my wife, I said, I, I, I think I could just, um, I think I could just retire and just read Raphael Sabatini novels for the rest of my life, mm. and I would be perfectly happy. We I mean, read one. Didn't we read one together? Uh, we, uh, Scaramouche. Scaramouche. Yeah, yes. Scaramouche was one of his most famous ones. This yeah. is, this is, but he has, he, he, he has a whole bunch of them oh, that set with Cincinnati. Yeah. That, yeah, was oh, yeah, there. he said all, just a whole, I've, I've got, I've got about 20 on my shelf and that's not all of them. And, um, and you know, he's, this is a guy who's, <laughs> English is his sixth language. Mm. And and he writes like a dream. It's it, just this is just, there's so much to read. There, there is. is there is. What are you reading? So I, I've been slowly working through T. H. White's uh, The Once Featured King Isn't for that a, fun? quite a while. It's it's very good, and I'm in the fourth book. So you know it's like close to a thousand pages as well, and I'm in chapter five of fifteen in the final book. I would say that I was really loving the first two. The third one I really liked, but it, it, he gets into some just like existentialism, and it, it gets a little weird in book three. Um, but I liked it and now in book four and I feel like maybe the narrative arc of book three wasn't very strong. It was a little meandering, but I've really enjoyed all four and it's my, when I'm feeding my son, I have it on my Kindle. And so it's literally, <laughs> yeah. I just read a you few pages while I'm, is, I'm is the Kindle a real book. I got a lot of flack for that from these two yeah, early on. We need to do an episode on that question. I, I don't know. Well, I I, it is not a real book. It is a phone with an electronic. But if you're, if you're going to criticize the Kindle, then do you have to criticize audiobooks also? No. Because they're not real books. Absolutely not. They're not real books. <laughs> so <laughs> leave, I think you should leave Shane alone and yeah, let him feed Jack speaking with of, his Kindle. Speaking of audiobooks, I started The Grapes of Wrath by Steinbeck. Mm. I think our oh, man, conversation on American literature, book. it's so sad. So I'm a third of the way it's through so it. so sad. It, it doesn't sad. get unsad. No. But it makes, it makes for really great excerpts in a sermon. Well. <laughs> <laughs> because it is just so much about taking care of people with, mm. in poverty yeah. that can't pull themselves out. What was the Steinbeck one that I read, the real short one, uh, oh, recently? Of Mice and Men? Yes, yes. Mm. So is, is grapes is grapes of wrath similar to that? I, well, I'd, I haven't read of my. The ending is college. Any happier? No. Uh, okay. okay. Hold off on the Sorry. spoiler alerts. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I just read the scene where Grand, Grandpa Joe dies, and I mean, it's just a really touching, like a powerful scene. And the way he write, it's really interesting how the book is set up in that he's telling this very specific story about this family, but then between incidents he kind of zooms out and like almost in a parable like way talks about this struggle between uh, individuals and the way that the, the American capitalistic society is kind of driving them towards individualism and away from, you know, I think what Wendell Berry calls membership Yeah, and the themes of Wendell Berry and Steinbeck, I, I see going very hand in hand. And one thing that I don't know if you guys would agree with this, that I think is interesting is that I've, I've loved the characters in Steinbeck so far, they're really interesting, but they're almost more, and they remind me of Wendell Berry's characters, 
but they're almost more caricature than Barry's characters are. Mm. Like Barry's are are very real and lifelike, but there is a caricature element to everyone in in Steinbeck. I can um, see that. But I've well, really I think one of his so achievements far. is that 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 his characters are both symbols and real people. Mm. I, I mean, I think he he and that's Barry or Steinbeck. That off, I think pretty well. Um, and I, you know, you mean you're talking about Steinbeck? I'm talking about Steinbeck, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, um, you know, there's this modernistic. Um, modernists tend to look down on this when the author does what he does, when he come kind of comes back and is commenting himself as the narrator on this. And I'm sorry, I I think it's just fine. I mean, the modernists want to do that through structure, and and Steinbeck and a lot of the great writers who use kind of an omniscient narrator. Um, will will do that, and I I always think the reason the modernists don't like it is because they're sort of um, they're sort of anti-religious, mm. and because the omniscient narrator really is in the place of God, mm. and and they don't like that, uh, so they just kind of strip all that out and just give you the bare bones of what's going on and try to. But I like I like when Steinbeck does that. Kind yeah, of I, I definitely wouldn't critique it. I found it very powerful, and I think that the way that he he's both like kind of allegorically expressing mm-hmm. the themes and expressing them through mm-hmm. very specific human interaction mm-hmm. is super uh, interesting and has drawn me in. Mm-hmm. I always thought it was sad that we couldn't include his books, especially Grapes of Wrath in our curriculum mm-hmm. because it, the language is just so, there's so much of it mm-hmm. that really it's hard to include Steinbeck with high schoolers. I mean, sure. it really just has to be saved for college, but but I think it's a loss. Mm. And I don't know if that was necessary. Like if I could talk to him today and say, hey, you strip all that language out of there. Maybe we would read it in school. <laughs> well, and one of my favorites. It's worth of, reading in yeah, school. Yeah. And one of my favorites of Steinbeck's, and it is, it is more in the character of a parable, is the pearl, mm. um, which is about what, you know, it's about wealth. It's about, it's one of the great, you know, I've always liked Tolkien because that the ring is such a universal symbol. Uh, he comes up with an almost equally universal symbol in, in, in the, the pearl, pearl of the world, mm. and and I just think that's a beautiful book. And you know, I don't I don't think that one has much language. Yeah, I guess I must have missed that because I remember reading that like in high school we had like an approved reading list that we could read like and the pearl was and on the it? pearl was on it. And I remember reading it and going, well, that was boring. But I haven't gone back to it <laughs> oh, since. Oh no, well, once you, I mean, when you're older and you can see yeah, yeah, all the sure. symbolic yeah. meaning behind it, I was I was when I uh, taught in the online school. I I always paired that with Old Man and the Sea mm. because Hemingway's vision of the world is so different from Steinbeck's vision of oh, the that world. That would be fun. Yeah. And, and this, it's a, it makes a great comparison and contrast. And The Once and Future King is also full of language. Look at all that stuff you're reading. Oof, yeah, don't tell but, my mother. So, Ma, I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> I used, um, when I taught fifth grade and we did King Arthur and Robin Hood, I would read excerpts from mm. The Once and Future King to my students, but I had to be really careful and like I had to really read it ahead of time and sure. make sure I knew what I needed to skip because there was no way I could put that book in their hands. Sure. But it's just, you know, just that when you're trying to teach, and fifth grade is the perfect place to teach that legend can be interpreted in many different ways. And Mm -hmm. the Once and Future King was a great example of pulling those stories out. Yeah, but the the Once and Future King is, there's a lot of sort of ironic 
there's a lot of irony in oh, there. Yeah. And so it's one that really depends, I think, upon a prior knowledge of the King Arthur story. True. It's one of those, because this is the problem we have now is that people read the ironized versions before and they, they don't read the know. real version. That's right. Right. The, yeah. the uh, uh, three little pigs uh, from the wolf's perspective before they've read the three little mm. pigs. <laughs> How sad. Yeah. So and, we've just done an entire book group. Well, I think we're done. <laughs> no, see, a critic of this podcast would say we've been off topic, but I would say that we've been exactly on topic because what is classical education but an education that prepares people to have these kinds of conversations nice and to love segue. them. So that is I my question. I feel like they're not great segues when they're pointed out, but you know. Well, I don't have a classical education, but I am. You have acquired to, one over the last. I'm acquiring years. one. I am acquiring one, but and I as really we all didn't are. come into this with it. And now you espouse classical education. I do. And you tell people what classical education is for a living. And we all do to a certain extent at this table. And I think an interesting question that I have is that in the landscape now, I think this classical education movement, if you want to call it that in America, is kind of reaching maybe a second stage. It's been in its infancy, but now there are people who were, who were raised in classical education. Uh, schools like Paul Schaefer, for instance, who are now leading classical schools. And that is probably not something that happened much in the 90s. So now we're hitting the second stage and there are people within these schools and within our movements that are saying, this is what classical education is, or this is what it is. And sometimes those views aren't always incompatible. We at Memorial Press and Hounds Latin School have very specific values. Why should anyone listen to us when we are saying this is what classical education is and this is why we think your school should work this way. And I think there's actually a lot of reasons for this. I don't think any of us at this table would say it was revealed to us by God that this is, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of mutually informing reasons we do the work that we do. So I thought it would be helpful if we as a group kind of talked about some of those reasons why we believe in the mission of Memorial Press. I think to kind of, okay, if I could set the tone a little bit sure, is just, you know, as somebody who grew up it, it, mostly in, you know, with teachers that were, you know, whether in, implicitly or explicitly, you know, espousing classical principles, it was easy to grow up going, well, this is the best form of classical education because it's what I got, mm -hmm. right? Um, or rather, maybe better English, but it's what I received. Uh so, you know, but you also see that, you know, and I mean, that's a natural human tendency to say the kind of education I got was the best education. So I think it's a, it's a danger for all of us. Um, but especially those that have been raised in semi-classical or classical contexts to say, well, my version of classical is the best version of classical when there's a whole humongous tradition that in, at K to 12 setting, we only scratched the surface of, sure. you know? And so I'm not saying that we don't have something to offer. We absolutely have something to offer. And I don't think it's arrogant of us to offer that to people. But what I am saying is that like when I entered, when I started working for Memorial Press, like I had a particular vision in my head of what classical education was, which has not changed in any significant ways. But I, I did start then running into other people that I was like, Oh, that's a different definition of what classical was. I mean, I had never heard of Dorothy Sayers before I walked into the doors at MP. I just never had. Not mm. even Peter Whimsey? No. No, wow. unfortunately. Yeah. He should have been on your approved list. Should have been reading. on my approved list. Well, you know, um, might have been a little too too British for Maybe the so. approved reading list. I have no idea. Mm. Um, 
But I do think that that's just something yeah. to, to take into account as we, we discuss sure. this is I'd love to say, well, this is the way it is. But then I also have to, my process of, of learning as an adult has been to say, okay, there's a whole lot of stuff that I didn't learn in sure. high school or college that's out there. It's like with all these books we're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. That now as an adult, I'm still reading and learning and still contextualizing what I learned about what education is, mm -hmm. you know, into adulthood. And I think Martin would still say he's learning stuff about the tradition, right? Well, I think I, that's the thing about classical education. You can never know it completely. Mm -hmm. right. You're always in the process of learning it. Because it's about forming the entire human person, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's just so much to plumb there, I think. Yeah. So given the limitations that Paul is mentioning, Martin, you have a video on YouTube where you say, what is classical education? And it has more views by a ton of any other content we've ever put on YouTube. And I think it's possible that that's because you've hired Russian bots to view the video to pad your <laughs> like own stats. even knows what a Russian bot is. I haven't told anybody that. How did, <laughs> <laughs> but outside that, what gave you the authority to tell all of us <laughs> what classical education is? Well, you know, I, I, I don't claim any particular authority other than, you know, having, uh, having read a bit. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think, um, that, you know, you, you have to, there's only, there's certain things you have to know to, to, to advocate something. You, you can't know everything about anything, uh, but you can have, you can know enough uh, to, to, to think that something is good to study. It's that it's good for you. And you, so I, cause I've had this critic, I've had this criticism by one critic that's saying, well, you don't, you don't know all the liberal arts. You've not studied arithmetic and all it's theoretical. Then you haven't completely studied Euclid and you haven't, well, now wait a minute. Um, if you're going to have a, re if you're going to study something, you have to have a reason for studying it. Mm -hmm. Right. And if it's something you don't know, then you have to probably know a little bit about it, but you have to have somebody give you a reason for studying. So let's take arithmetic. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but if, if I say it's valuable to study arithmetic, you know, arithmetic, geometry, you know, the quadrivium, if it's valuable to study that, do I have to be an expert at that to do that? No, I don't. I, and, and I have to give people reasons that are in language. Mm -hmm. The reasons for studying arithmetic are not arithmetical. The reasons for studying geometry are not geometrical. Uh, th there's, there's enough you can know to know that something is valuable, that, that, that you can, that will give you a reason for studying it. And then you can give, give other people then, reasons like, for studying it. If you know that you're, if you do feel it's valuable and necessary, then you would be hiring the people you needed to hire in order right. to make that happen for your children. That, that's right. I mean, that's what I did because I did, wasn't classically educated, but I, mm -hmm. I recognized the value of it. And when you said you'd read a little bit, I, it, it reminded me of, Remember several years ago, it's been quite, it's been a long time when Cheryl had you researching all of the history of classical education <laughs> and you were doing all those articles mm -hmm. on Cotton Mather. Mm -hmm. I mean, you literally, you all went back to the beginning and, and really researched it and yeah. figured out what it was and the history of it and all of that stuff. It's not, I came into it just in the basement of a church telling you know, with Cheryl Lowe telling me classical education is the study of Latin and the ancient 
civilizations of Greece and Rome. It's been that for 25 years, and I don't see any reason why we need to redefine it. 2,500? 2,500. Did okay. I say 25? <laughs> 25 young years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you you listen to the case for it from, uh, from people who have done it and who do mm-hmm. know it. Um, one of my favorites is A Defense of Classical Education by R.W. Livingston, which we've run excerpts from in our, in our magazine several times. And I can, you know, he makes a, an excellent case for somebody who doesn't have that kind of education, that it's worthwhile to seek this education. And here's why Plato makes a case for the quadrivium in, in the Republic, that you don't have to know the quadrivium to understand uh, why it's important to study it, right? So... Yeah. So you'd say, I think you would both say, it's fair to say that there's some, that this is informed by a study of history and what's happened in education. You would say that to a certain extent, it's just informed by wisdom and cultivating wisdom over time. And then, you know, Tanya, it seems to me like you've really helped me understand classical education specifically from the perspective of it works. Right. We've seen it work for a long time. And if we insist on that, despite all of the, you know, human tendencies that slide away from excellence, if we would stay focused, it, it'll work. Right. But it is, I'm sorry, were you going to? No, you go ahead. Uh, you do need to have a good working definition of right. it. And there, there are, as Paul mentioned, many out, many out there. And, you know, because what started this movement was, was uh, Dorothy Sayers' taxonomy of learning, uh, 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 talking about these stages of learning a child goes through, Wait, which were started not. Started this movement? Yes, the Dor- classical education Dor- movement. I mean, excuse me, the ne- what I'll call the neoclassical education <laughs> okay. movement. That The reason we're here. Because I just said it's yeah. only 25 years old, and now you're saying Dorothy Sayers started it. Like the, you're not, I know well, you're but not I'm sorry, on the that. basis of her we essay. To, is what, yeah. <laughs> now, and, and again, uh, I don't think that's what Dorothy Sayers was even referring to there. She was just talking about her taxonomy. She never uses, uses the word classical. Um, and, and so that essay was was published in a book by an evangelical pastor. And that's what, that's what effectively started the, the classical education movement. Re, rejuvenated. Re, well, I mean, I, I what, think what, I, okay. I'm, I'm going to say the neoclassical education movement because we've got a whole movement out there, many parts of which still don't understand. They're still going by the Dorothy Sayers thing, but they're, and they're doing a lot of, they're reading, you know, some of the great texts and they're doing a lot of the right things. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, I mean, the classical education movement goes back to Greece. Right. Uh, but, I think that's the, right. I think you and I are both, yeah, yeah, yeah. both not using good, I didn't mean to say 25 years, but. Yeah. But, but the do. modern classical schools movement. Okay. And it's, that and only it's started in form. about 1990. And it's modern form. Yeah, right. And, and people, Maybe you would say people who specifically identify the education that they are providing as classical doesn't really happen until later because before that, that was just education, right? Isn't that the, the yeah. point I mean, that you've made been, before? Yeah, that's been my point is that is that what education was, yeah. was what we would now call classical education because of how it was, you know, it's, it's it, you know, uh, in up until the turn of the 20th century, what, what were schools doing? Well, they were passing on Western civilization. That, that was the, that was the well understood goal of, of, of education on a, on a cultural level and on an individual level, it was, you know, uh, inculcating wisdom and virtue and you can go back and look at the writings and that's what they're saying. I mean, so, and then, 
what happens is at the turn of the 20th century, you get these other agendas, other purposes that have replaced that cultural goal. So now we have either this progressivist impulse in education, which is to use schools to change the culture. It's social and political reform. Um, that was what John Dewey was mostly concerned about. And then you have this other strain of what I would call pragmatism, which is that education is job training, that, that the purpose of a school is to fit children to the modern economy. Uh, those are the things that tend to dominate now in our schools. And many times they're, they're woven together. I mean, edu every education reform movement since the 1920s, where, where it was, mostly the progressivist goal has had those two progressivism and pragmatism as their main Im impulses. Uh, and they're, they're, they happen every 25 years. If you go back and look these national reform movements, they're all those two new purposes of education that are not concerned about passing on our culture. And Donna, you're concerned with kind of ironing out our verbiage is that this, this movement that we're espousing today has historical roots, right? Right, mm -hmm. which is, I think Martin has explained that it was education and it is now classical education. So when he, I, I was just concerned that when he said the classical movement started yeah. um, with Dorothy Sayers, that we were neglecting to focus on the fact that it started over 2,000 years ago, really. And it was education. And I think... I think it's in Climbing Parnassus. I think Tracy Lee Simmons does a really good job of explaining how it changed. Um, you know, that if I, if I think that's the book where he talks about like when Harvard start, stopped requiring Latin and Greek before you could get in. And that really, just a really nice little summary of, of the downfall of it when education changed at what point and at what different schools and different societies. So Paul, I think that the argument that we're making about the history of education is, has way more to do about broad historical trends of Western education. I think someone could come back to Martin's original point and say, a historian could stand up and say, you guys don't know enough about the history. I've done my thesis on 15th century French schools and they don't look like your schools. How would you respond to that kind of critique of our historical argument about Memorial Press's view of classical education? I mean, we're talking about, right, as as Tanya, as we pointed out after Tanya started, it was 25 years old. I mean, a 2,500-year-old uh, tradition, right? And in any tradition, you go and you look, and there's there's evolution of the, that tradition, Right. And you wouldn't say that that tradition as, as manifested today is, is, um, you know, contrary to maybe where it started or contrary to where it was halfway or whatever, but that it's, it's meant to serve the group of people that are, that, that are following that tradition. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, maybe I should have had an example ready. I don't have an example ready. Um, but so, so, so for somebody to say English schools in the 16th century didn't, well, hold on. Let me go, let me go back a little further. Let's say um, monastic schools in ninth century Italy didn't study Homer. 
okay, well, very possibly they didn't have a copy of Homer. Sure. Right. Um, or to say, you know, whatever that is, but, but for us to study Homer and you to point out, well, they didn't do that in ninth century Italy. Well, that's neither here nor there. Like you go back further. Yeah, they did it. Right. You go back to, to the 1500s. They were doing it because they had a copy of it. Right. So, you know, you kind of have to take it from a, from a grand perspective and say, okay, given all of that, um, you know, what, what are the principles over the long period of time? And, and then let, how do we choose that for the manifestation that we have today? I remember Cheryl Lowe talking a lot in the office about what is 21st century classical education? What does it look like? Um, because, you know, I, I sat there and I read uh, a plan of studies from the 1590s one time with, you know, when my desk was right next to hers and I was like, I turned around and I said, Hey, look, you know what they did in the 1590s was they spent three to four years when Latin was no longer the vernacular and they spent three to four years in a grammar school just doing Latin. That's what they did for six, seven hours a day. And then in middle school and high school, everything was done in Latin. I said, why don't we do that? That would be classical <laughs> education, right? And she was like, you convince the parents and maybe we'll consider it, you know? And I mean, that was her saying classical education in the 21st century is going to be modified based on where we're at. Right. And I thought that was a very, very wise comment was you can, you can try to say, you know, we're going to go back and do it the way the Romans did. Well, let's get out our clay tablets and our, our, um, what are they called? What are the writing utensils? The stylus. The stylus. Yeah. Right. Well, I guess we get our, out our, our metal and, and, and uh, glass tablet with our stylus. No, um, no, it would have to be clay, right? If we're going to do it the way the Romans did it. And that makes no sense. Right. Yeah. yeah. And they're also, you know, if you, if you really want to be, uh, fully and completely classically educated, you know, you would have to know Latin, you'd have to know Greek, you'd have to know, um, you'd have to be able to read the great works which were written in those languages, in those languages. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure that a person who knows how to do that uh, looks at, at, at uh, what, you know, we're trying to do with, with schools and parents and, and, and they may think, well, that's, that's not really the full classical education. Um, but, you know, you it, you still, full, I mean, what is, there's so much out there to read. I mean, just making decisions about what our students need to read. And that's evolved mm -hmm. over the years too. We sure. used to read Livy and then, you know, we, um, now we read Cicero. It, there's just so much. Well, and, the, and it's you, you know you have to pick and choose, right? But it, but what I'm saying is that that you know you have those people, and you can even find them you know in classics departments and universities, and that's what they do, and they now talk about very specialized topics within those. Um, but then you also have manifestations of it, like if you're going to be a priest uh, in certain places and in certain times, then you had a you you probably had a different strain of it. If you were, uh, you know, Harvard in in Princeton, in the colonial period and in the founding period, they were where you had to know Latin and Greek and have read a lot of the great authors before you even could get in. Right. Um, that was largely training for for pastors, for, for ministers. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you had its use in terms of law, um, law and 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 theology. Uh, you know, you had to, you were expected at certain times, the colonial period is one of them to know, to be, you know, you were going, a, a minister was always the most learned person in his community. And, uh, and that's what, that was what you expected to know. 
Um, and if you were a ruler, you probably got a, you know, in, in an aristocracy, you got a classical education probably that was of a little different strain. So it does take different forms. And here we are in the 21st century when, when things have been dumbed down to an incredible extent. And, and, and we're, we're, we've gone three or four generations where we have not passed on our culture. So we're in a different position from any of those. And we're having to figure out how do we get back on track here and start going back in the right direction. And that's going to look very different from those other things. And I think we just need to be patient about that and understand that this is a work um, of reconstruction and a work of reconstruction is going to be different from a full-fledged classical program. And I think that's really important. And I think it's important for homeschoolers and for schools who are new to classical education that, that, you know, a lot of times they, if they come here and visit, they're intimidated by what we're doing, but we used to look like them. It is a process. And the more you, the more you can do, then the more in future years you can do, Mm -hmm. but it is a process and people are at different places on this journey. And so it doesn't mean that our definition of classical education changes at all, but it is, as Paul said, it is forming the entire human. It's, it's more than just books. It's, it's character forming and all of those things are going to look different based on where you are. And I would like to circle back a little bit to where Martin was talking about, like you don't have to be an expert to, to promote something, but I do want to point out, like the, the what gives Memoria Press, right, as a, as a as an institution, um, sort of the the place to stand to say we can tell you how to teach, uh, you know, uh, Latin. If Martin wrote the Latin program, I think we'd have a little bit of an issue, right? We wouldn't be able to stand up there, Excuse right? Excuse me. Wow, um, <laughs> slander, you know, or or you know, I, I was going to use other examples, but no. Um, <laughs> You know, but if if I wrote the geometry program, right? I mean, it'd be a little bit of an issue, right? But we have like a whole host of people who really know their stuff, and they're the ones that are contributing to the programs and 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 helping say this is the best way to teach this from a classical perspective. So, um, you know, I think I think our audience often sees, you know, just a few faces and don't realize just the tremendous amount of uh, the, resources. The, the resources and the huge team that's behind it mm-hmm. that's that's contributing to all of it. I think that's one reason why it's so important that, and one of the reasons we talk about Mrs. Lowe a lot, even now, even though she's not with us any longer, is because while we have these different individual experts in their field of study, there is like a soul to the purpose that brings all of us together and, and talking about an actual person who had that soul, literally, and was expressing it has, I think, given us a particular vision that mm-hmm. when we say, what is classical education, each of those individual people may not have exactly the same set of definitions about every particular thing, but we're all moving in the same direction with a certain level of expertise in each of the different areas. I think one one reason this conversation is important to me is I think some people have a habit of mind where they want to come to the reason why this is the exact correct way to conceive of class. And there's just a lot of reasons Mm -hmm. why we do the work that we do and why it's important to us. And it has evolved. We have evolved as a company, as a school, 
we have we're not necessarily doing everything the way we were 20 years ago, but what hasn't evolved is the the vision, the purpose, the definition for us has not changed. So Martin, you said it was important that we have a working definition, even though we make the caveats, we talk about the ways that we're coming to it and that it's a more robust and this equals this equals the correct definition. What is that working definition? And let's talk about what makes that definition important to us and when we press. Well, I think I, I kind of already said it. I'll just put it back together again. Uh, it is, it is the passing on of West, the, the, the culture of the Christian West to the next generation. That's the larger goal. The more individual goal is, is to, uh, develop wisdom and virtue in our students. And we do that by uh, studying great books in the liberal arts. So Paul, unpack that final part of it. The great books and the liberal Explain arts. Explain what Martin just said. <laughs> I always have to be your translator. Uh, <laughs> Actually, and I, I, think sworn I will never go after Martin. I'll never talk after Martin. He steals what I want to say. Um, no, this is good. Um, what the, the study of the great books and liberal arts. Uh, well, do I need to go into the great books? Yes. Oh, of course. <laughs> what are they? <laughs> I, How dare Martin say that some books are great and others aren't? Oh, well, I agree with him. Some books are great and some books aren't. Um, but we don't always agree on which ones are and which ones. And that's aren't. why we—that's why we have a circular table so we can argue at mm-hmm. length. Um, no, I think one hallmark of great books is they've stood the test of time. I think another hallmark is they speak to something that's universal, universally human, right? Um, and so, you know, there is a traditionally respected canon of great books. There's arguments about whether one's included or one's not included. Um, and that just so many conversations about what we should study. Right. I mean, Tony can test that more than I can. I mean, it's just, we'll go round and round and round about a book. Um, and whether, and because, because, I, I think that conversation is, it's interesting because the conversations we have is whether it's worth the academic time, right? The time that you're going to spend academically in your homeschool or the time you're going to spend in a classroom. We, we don't argue about whether that should be included in the canon at all or whether we should recognize that as a great book. Like we generally are like, yeah, it's a wonderful book should be read. The question is how high does it rise on, on the, on the, priority list of making sure every child reads that. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the great books. And I think, and I would, I might just nuance Martin saying, instead of saying the great books, I might say the humanities, which is going to include history and art and, and a whole bunch more about what does it mean to be human than just the literary work. Martin, how do you feel about that? Uh, I'm lukewarm on it. To be honest, lukewarm, yeah. yeah. And maybe that's well, what you mean by the great books. Well, maybe. yeah, it depends on what you mean by the great books. If you're talking about that traditional canon, now you're not. You, I think you're correct, like per- particularly with uh, art and music, that those aren't represented mm-hmm. in a lot of the uh, the traditional formulations of the traditional canon that have been put out there, and they do need uh, to be in that in that canon. Um, and that's why you know Memorial College were actually you know bringing in you know we now have classes in music and art because that's not in the old Adler Hutchins list. Hmm. Right. So, um, so I, I, I think that's a, that's a good corrective. He agreed with you. Yeah. I was just going to let that sit for a minute. So now you've got to, (laughs) and you've got to expand your definition of classical education. Well, I think on the, on the, the great books 
uh, when I say the great books in the liberal arts, because this goes back to uh, a, a three-word expression that we do associate with education, which is the arts and the sciences. And we, you know, people say that, but what does that really mean? And it does mean something different from what it looks like to a lot of people, because art looks like painting or or whatever, and and sciences, everyone thinks the natural sciences. Well, that's that that expression means a whole lot more than that. It means the the mental skills that you need to be able to think. And we have, that's what the liberal arts are. Is there the set of linguistic and mathematical skills that you need to try to master as much as you can uh, in order to think well? And then on the other side is, is the content, the knowledge. Um, the, 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 that's where all the cultural content is. And uh, you're, you're going to... Um, you're going to do the three sciences in some way, the theological sciences, and traditionally speaking, there were basically three, the theological sciences, um, the, um, the natural sciences, and the human or moral sciences. That pretty much, co- you, can put, you can put all the subjects, uh, the content subjects, under those three categories. And so, um, you know, we're, we're a Christian company, so we, you know, we, we have a Christian studies program, which is a very general because we don't want to step on, um, you know, uh, the, the, the toes of people who have specific, you know, emphases in, in uh, the Christian world. Um, but, but we all do believe that there's a set of, there's a set of beliefs, dog, dogmatics, it was called. Uh, there's a set of beliefs about ethics, ethics, and then apologetics, how to defend your faith. And then on the on the uh, the natural sciences, you know, earth sciences and life sciences, and then you have under um, under the humanities, you have basically three things. There's, there you could you could you could parse it out a little bit more, but it's basically history, literature, and philosophy. And philosophy is usually something you reserve till college when you're better prepared. So really, it's literature and history is what we mean when we talk about the human sciences. Yeah. I was going to say, I agree with everything Martin said until that very last statement. Mm. <laughs> to reserve. Because you philosophy. start metaphysics philosophy. in high school. By, yeah. Well, by we call it, I think well, if, we're if you have an introduction but, to classical philosophy. I mean, right. we've, we've done the work to prepare the students. So they're, mm-hmm. so they're ready for it. Not every student's going to be ready for it. But not every school is. It, not every school is going to be able to do it. That's that. right. That's, That's why. Right. So speaking of that. Yes. Is, <laughs> is, is the studio ready? Oh, are you waiting on the I'm studio? I'm waiting on the studio. He always has a reason. <laughs> so, Paul, I did want to double back to your point about the great books. As I think that's illustrative of this whole conversation we're having. Is He, he pointed out, A, that classical education is reading certain books, and then immediately proceeded to question which books those were. So does that undermine what we are saying classical education is? And I think we are answering, no. We're in agreement that students should read the great books, it's the particularities of which one that there's room for disagreement about within the broader movement of classical education. Mm-hmm. Well, and not even disagreement necessarily, just as much, just, it's really a matter of what's the best use of our students' time mm-hmm. when we're talking about school is we can't read it all. They sure. can't read it all. And there are some things, the reason we don't have Livy anymore is because the teachers came in and said, there's some racy stuff in here that we just, you know, feel uncomfortable teaching. Okay, so we're not we we can reserve Livy for later. That doesn't mean Livy's not worth studying, or is it shouldn't be part of the great books. 
But there are so many decisions that go into it. We can't read it all. So it is a matter of, and that those are the conversations we have, is what is the best use of time? What should students be studying? What does lead them best toward being able to do even more difficult things? Do they need to be exposed to Augustine? Yep. Yes. I mean, we just have determined, yes, they do. We've got to, we've got to expose them to Augustine, regardless of how hard he is. He is, the, he is the foundation for so much that they can't do without mm-hmm. right. Right. Yeah, you have You have to hit the high points, and you are trying to figure out which, what are which the high one, points. Right. Well, and I think, I think the beauty of recognizing there's a 2,500-year tradition, history, and works that have come out of that tradition that we want to read, right? All of a sudden, we have loads of things we want to expose the students to. Whereas if we, if we cut ourselves off from that tradition, all of a sudden it's, well, how many books of Harry Potter are there for us to read? Right. I mean that to be flipping about it, I guess. But if you, if you, all of a sudden when you have 2,500 years worth of phenomenal literature to go pick on, you go, Oh my gosh, how are we even going to, what do we, what do we decide on? And, and, the help is, of course, the tradition itself, because that's that's what's been going on for 2,500 years, is sorting that out. And so, you know, the judgments that that people prior to us have made about that are the kind of things we need to be looking at, because they're, in most cases, a whole lot better uh, positioned to make those judgments than we are. So when we're making mm-hmm. those decisions, we're relying on previous decisions about the same thing. We are, and that really circles back around to the beginning. Um do I have the right to decide that our students are going to read Augustine mm. if I haven't read The City of God? Then does that mean they shouldn't read Augustine because I have particularly myself not read it because I wasn't classically educated? Or am I capable of listening to other people, reading enough, knowing enough to know what is foundational in Augustine that they should read mm. it? I mean, that's it. Well, seems it's a crazy argument to say that that you know that you don't have the credibility to make these decisions because you're not because you haven't read everything. Mm. Yeah, if you don't have other people you whose judgments you trust, then you're in a bad state, mm-hmm. in my opinion. And so, part of wisdom, I think, is uh, you know deferring to people who know more than you do and trying to figure out even in that case, there are people who disagree, right? And, you know, listening to the arguments that they make for this or that, it's just a matter of judgment and you got to be able to practice it. And we just do the best we can and we come at it with a spirit of humility. We mm-hmm. know we don't know it all. We don't expect to know it all and we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. But our our purpose is a good one. And it is what it needs to be, I think. Maybe we lose track of that every now and then. But our purpose is the education of children and the forming of them. And and we just we do the best we can with that. So I have one more question for Martin to end us. This whole conversation, in one sense, is about defending why, even though we're all inclined not to listen to you, we actually should. <laughs> Do you have any last I think arguments why we should listen to you? 
Have we said everything? All the reasons why? Oh, but, uh, I'm sure there are more that you probably haven't <laughs> thought of, but uh, no, I, I can't think of any more. Um, <laughs> but but uh, why should we listen to Martin? To, uh, give us a reason why we should listen to Martin. If he may not be the expert on Martin, do we know he's the oh expert gosh, on Martin? Oh my gosh, now we're doing philosophy. Yeah, well, I got a degree in it, but I just still don't understand what he just said. Um, no, I, uh, I, I, um, I'm, I'm, I probably am not the best person to give the reasons why you should listen to me. <laughs> All right. Well, even though I'm sure he has some, <laughs> I, think about it. And next episode, we'll maybe we'll double back. <laughs> okay. Thank you guys. This has been a joyful conversation. Thanks.